Good to see you all. I'm Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to walk us through the text this morning. It's kind of a special day for us. Uh, one of the things that you see in this text here that I appreciate is um, Paul says this. Um, he says, though I'm absent with you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. I'm present with you in spirit. And how, how often we are prone to this, or at least I am prone to this kind of out of sight, out of mind thing, and you kind of get caught up in your own trench of whatever you have going on. But with us today, uh, with us in spirit and in body, is Pastor Emre from Turkey. I have a picture of his family up here. I think Pastor Emre's in the room somewhere. Uh, see, he might be. If you're in here, can you stand up? Oh, he must be in the lobby, uh, hanging out with people. But Pastor Emre is one of our partners in Turkey. He's a church planner. He's on the leadership team of this thing called the Protestant Church Foundation in Turkey, which are huge deals. Uh, he's probably the only person in the room who's ever had an assassination plot on him, and he's maintained faithfulness to the gospel, and uh, he's, a, he's a major player in Turkey, and he's one of our partners. We're sending a team there this summer to pray and walk with him through some of what they have going on, and after service, he's going to be up here in the front right of the room with Mark uh, Burns, our Outward Focus pastor, but I just want to take a moment and pray for him and be grateful that he's here with us and uh, thank the Lord for him. All right, God, thank you for... Uh, Pastor Emre, thank you for his family and their commitment to your gospel. God, thank you for the way that he was freed from uh, the oppressive uh, false teaching that he grew up in under Islam, and he's now uh, united to you and knows that Jesus is the Lord, the I Am, uh, the way, the truth, and the life. And God, I pray that just like you spoke to him through the scriptures and, and miraculously by your spirit, that you'd speak to more and more through his ministry. God, I pray for his radio and internet ministry that reaches thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of folks in Turkey, that you'd work with them and connect dots and save more people. And God, I pray for folks in this room who maybe have a future in church planning in places like Turkey or a future in supporting church planners like that in Turkey, that they would take the courageous step and come and talk with them afterwards and hear a bit more of his story. God, thank you for this. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're teaching through Colossians here, and it's a pretty uh, a, a fun passage we get to talk here. Uh, the sermon title today is Do the Work, and a lot of times we think that we can uh, have progress without struggle, or we can get, move things forward without doing work, and a lot of times we end up believing that uh, we're going to just kind of be these passive recipients of something going on, but Paul here really highlights the value of doing the work, the types of work you have to do. And he's doing the work for a purpose. And this is kind of the centerpiece of this little text here. In chapter 1, um, verse uh, 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is interesting, isn't it? You know, when, when people come to you and say, you know, here's a picture of me when I was younger, I can't help but think every picture is a picture of you when you were younger. That's how time works. That's how cameras work. Show me a picture of you when you're older, and that, that'll blow my mind. You know, I'll spend some money on that one coming soon, right? It, but everyone grows older. Growing older is not special. Growing older mostly means you've somehow avoided calamity. Uh, but everyone ages. Everyone gets old. But not everyone gets mature, right? We know this. People are popping into your head. You're saying, don't judge them, you know, but you don't know. But then you see, meet other people who are maturing at a rate faster than they're aging. Other people are aging at, fast rate, aging at a rate faster than they're maturing, right? So getting older is not really a, a meaningful goal, but maturity is a meaningful goal. And I think about this church, I mean, 12 years old. Are we getting older or are we maturing? And what's the difference? What does it mean to be mature? Well, Paul kind of goes on to say, here's what maturity is. And this is, here's the deal is nobody prefers to be immature, like if anybody said mature or immature, 
nobody's voting immature, right? Would you rather have good decision-making, bad decision-making, clear thought process, unclear thought process? Um, you know, be, be tossed to and fro by, um, you know, folly, or would you rather be kind of rooted and, and meaningful and in control of your life? Would you be mature, immature? Everyone's going to pick maturity. And even when he talks about what a mature church is, it seems like relatively obvious stuff. Later on, he says, um, full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Does anybody in the world want less assurance of the knowledge of God's mystery? <laughs> no matter what religion you're in, no matter what household you're in, no matter where you grow up, secular, non-secular, everyone wants to know the secrets of the universe. Everyone wants to know the future. Everyone wants to know the riches of what's going on. Everyone wants assurance. Would you rather be secure or insecure? Secure. Would you rather be assured or non-assured? Assured. So I think what Paul says is maturity is this picture of being fully assured and understanding God's mystery in Christ, knowing the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him all things are hidden. That, I think if you've been a Christian for about five minutes, you know, that's kind of the goal, to be solid and firm in faith in Jesus, to know him and how he unlocks the world. But I think the big question for us is not just what is a mature church, but more so what does it take to become a mature church? Right? Knowing the goal and knowing the path to get there are two different things. I've heard it said that uh, you know, leadership is uh, defining reality, defining desired preferred future, and being able to architect the path to get there. Right? Paul's not just saying you're mature, get more mature, but he's saying I'm, here's what maturity is and here's how we're going to get there. And so what I want to argue is that Paul's going to kind of give us a picture of what it's going to take for us to get there. How does Redemption Gateway become a mature church, not just an old church? How does Seth not just become an older Christian, but a mature Christian? An older person, but a mature person. What's it going to take to get there? And I think part of what he says is you have to do the work. Do the work of cultivating maturity. And we see a couple things here. Revealing the secret. There is enjoying the stewardship. And last, there is embracing the struggle. This is the work that we're all called to do, both personally and corporately, to become and press into maturity and not just to be content with getting old. All right, let me pray for us and we'll move forward. God, help us see your good design in this text. Help us um, recognize and press into uh, what you're teaching us. And I pray that we would all uh, see the various ways that we are responsible in contributing to our maturity and that we'd understand where that ends and where this total dependence on your spirit begins. God, I do ask that you would help us, Redemption Gateway, take steps towards maturation, not just aging. And I pray we wouldn't confirm those two uh, conflate those two things or confuse those two things. But God, I ask that this text would speak to us and we'd get it. Amen. All right, so the first thing we got is reveal the secret. And I chose this word secret because uh, it's, uh, it's what's in the text. So here's what we got. Ch chapter 1, verse 27. To them God, so he's talking about the history, there's a mystery hidden for the ages. Verse 26. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now is revealed to the saints. So there was a mystery, now there's not a mystery. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches and glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Further down in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what we see in this text is two things about mystery. One, there was a mystery that was hidden for the ages, and two, the mystery is now revealed, and it is Christ, or Christ in you. One of my favorite restaurants in Gilbert is this place called Topo. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, uh, but if you want to know where Taylor and I somehow ending up on date night almost all the time, it's Topo. Either they do burritos and ice cream. It's pretty simple, right? Most of the time we're there for the ice cream, but a lot of times 
I'm there for the burritos is a kind of how it plays out. But when that project first got announced, it's right on Gilbert Road. Uh, Joe, the architect of this project, not the architect in the literal sense, but in like the ideation sense, they put this big black box and it was just the black box. And it created this buzz, what's in the box? Big black box. And it was this big like 30 by 30 black box and it's like future development. What is it gonna be? Is it gonna be a restaurant? Is it gonna be a nail salon? Is it gonna be you know, a drive-through foot massage place? You don't know what it's gonna be. And there's you know, making out things, black box, create an Instagram account, black box, Gilbert. And there's all this, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? And then eventually one day you wake up and the black box is off and there's a burrito stand inside with this gopher on top and it's topo. Uh, the mystery is revealed. No more questions, right? One of the problems we have in Christianity all the time is we act like there's more mystery than there is. We go, oh, it's mysterious what God has done. It was mysterious. It's no longer mysterious. The mystery is revealed in Christ. One of the questions we had in the Old Testament is how is God going to pull this off? Look at these depraved, divided, selfish, ridiculous people. Look at the law that's been given, and they won't follow it. The people God speaks to act like the people that God doesn't speak to. The Gentiles act like this. The Jews act like the Gentiles. There's no real cohesion or vision. It seems like, what? how is God going to pull off this story of redemption? How is God going to take that which is broken and make it whole? How is God going to take the world which has gone awry and bring order to the chaos? How is he going to do it? And what Paul is saying is this mystery was hidden. It was revealed. It was in a black box. But now, all of a sudden, it's revealed. It's Christ. That the secret is revealed. That word mystery could be translated secret. The things that God has kept to himself, he is no longer keeping to himself. Is that good news or what? There is mystery in how we interact with God. How exactly does prayer work? How exactly does God's sovereign will and upholding the universe work with our free will? How exactly um, are we one in Christ and at the same time our own separate individuals? There are mysterious elements in it, but the fundamental centerpiece of the gospel of what God is doing in the world is not a mystery. It has been revealed. We know the answer, and it's Christ and Christ in us, in us in Christ. If you went up to some person and said, do you want to know the secrets of the universe? If they say no, that doesn't mean they don't want to know that. That just means they don't want to know what you think it is. <laughs> no, go away. You know, it's when, would you like to save a million dollars? No. What I'm saying is, stop bothering me. I'm not saying, no, I don't want a million dollars. Would you like to have all your debts forgiven? No, I'm saying I don't trust you. I'm not saying I don't want that. A lot of the times we recognize that there's this universal human desire to know what exactly is God up to. And what Paul is getting at is we know what God is up to. He is substituting himself for people. He is judging the world correctly in Christ and saving people, not on their own good works, but on the basis of the works of Jesus. He's including a variety of people who are all unlike each other, ethnicities, races, economic statuses, genders, and he's bringing them together to be one in Christ. And this is God's mystery, Christ in you. This is a letter written to mostly Gentile audience. It's not just that Jesus loves some people, that God loves some people, but it's God loves you people. Look around. Every person in this room is every bit as sinful and insecure as you are. You might think you're the only one with sins in the closet. You might think they're the only one who has social anxiety because you're insecure, not what's going on. You might think you're the only one who wishes you knew more about the Bible than you knew. You might think you're the only one who's going, I didn't grow up in the household where I was, had this modeled for me and that creates this insecurity. You might think you're the only one who goes, I grew up in a household where this is modeled for me and I'm still terrible. But guess what? 
Every person in this room is every bit as foolish, sinful, and insecure as me and as you are. And the mystery of the universe is that Christ is in these types of people. Now, you expect the monks to be holy or whatever. You expect the people who, like, take themselves really seriously and go live on an island and do nothing and, you know, pull their eyes out so they don't ever see something they shouldn't see. And, like, you expect, like, the super ultra-radical people to, like, you know, I know this from time to time when I meet folks and they find out I'm a pastor and they go, like, oh, sorry I, you know, said that curse word 16 weeks ago or whatever, you know. And I'm like, trust me, after you get to know me, you won't feel like that because... The mystery is not, I'm awesome, come be like me, I'm following Jesus, right? And you, should, you, can, you can be like me and do the right thing all the time. The mystery is that Jesus loves me as I am, and that Christ loves a bunch of people who are worse than me in a lot of ways, better than me in a lot of ways, but we're all insecure and sinful. This is the mystery, and it's revealed. The mystery is not some fancy, super spiritual discipline. The mystery is not some uh, geographic location you've got to make a pilgrimage to. The mystery is not some special chemical that's going to unlock your consciousness. The mystery is God loves sinful, broken people as they are, and he's bringing them to himself, and he's revealing that. Reveal the secret. It's this, let the secret get out. You know, there's some secrets that you're not supposed to tell. You know, there's certain people you know, if you tell them a secret, it's basically like making a public announcement. Tell those people the mysteries revealed in Christ. Paul talks about this a little bit in one of his other letters, t- describing the condition. This is, this is what was true in the first century when Paul wrote this. is true nowadays. Now, there's these people who are always learning, but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. No self-help books. No weekends away. No eat, pray, love. No amount of yoga. No amount of fasting. No amount of prayer is going to reveal in a different way, what has already been revealed, which is Christ crucified for us, that God is making us a people. Second thing we see here is enjoying the stewardship. Paul uh, says one of these things that is just crazy. We don't, see, we think that, we think this is impossible, what Paul's doing here. This verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Is he nuts? Is he crazy? What's his deal? Who rejoices in sufferings? Those are like those like psychopathic bodybuilder types who are like, I like the pain, you know? And you're going, I think you should leave this place and go to therapy. That's what I think you should do. I like the pain. You're like, oh my God, you're, you're nuts. Like I rejoice in my suffering. Rejoice, to enjoy, to have joy. Same root word. If you're joyful, you're rejoicing. If you're enjoying something, you know, it's, it's bringing you joy. That's all kind of the same core word here. Like, what does it mean to enjoy or to have joy or to rejoice, to you know, praise God because of my sufferings? Later on, he says this in chapter 2, um, verse 5. This is one of the reasons why we have this section is Paul, ta- verse 1, I rejoice in my sufferings. Last verse here, chapter 2, verse 5. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. He's rejoicing this church he hasn't seen. He's happy. He's happy of heart in this idea. And what he's happy about is his ability to steward what God's given him. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, what is a steward? A steward is someone who is managing something that he doesn't own or she doesn't own for the benefit of the owner and or for someone else. Like a steward, if you go to like some super wealthy person's house, another way you could talk about that is almost like a butler. You have this like servant who's coming around, like they're, they're in charge, but they don't own it. Like I think about uh, right now, I like watching the Suns at, at 12.30. You know, the Suns on Mother's Day, you know, real conflict of interest. You know, you got to recognize, you know. Those of you, you know, mothers who don't like the Suns, you know, um, 
sorry for that hand you got dealt, you know? So it's Mother's Day lunch, and it's Suns playoff game, right? But I think about like James Jones. He's the manager of the Suns. He's not the talent. He's not the players. He's not the owners, but he's kind of responsible for like the whole deal, right? He's totally like he's not the owner. He's not the talent. He's the manager. Is he having a good time right now? He's definitely having a good time, right? He's GM of the year. He's doing fantastic. That we can, as managers or stewards, enjoy what's going on even though it's not ours. I remember in high school, I went and house sat for this super wealthy family, and they said, anything you want in the fridge? I remember thinking like, wow, what is this like? You know, this, this like mansion with a fridge full of whatever stuff that's like, you know, it's like the, uh, remember when the, the lottery was like $700 million, and someone said, like, what would you do if you won the lottery? And someone said, I think I'd buy two whole uh, cartons full of food at Whole Foods. You know, that's what I would do. I would, you know, I'd break the bank big time. Like, this was a house, they had Whole Foods in the fridge, you know, and it was, it was, just, it was just bursting at the seams and thinking, oh, house sitting in this situation is a great time. I'm going to enjoy this stewardship. I'm, you know, I'm honoring the owners. I'm keeping it safe. You know, people might come and go, but basically I just went doing this. That when we talk about stewarding the gospel, the message of Jesus, that Christ dies, that Jesus comes close to us and dies for us, that we won't be punished for our sin, but he was punished for our behalf, and that God loves us as we are. Not, he doesn't love us for what we will become. He loves us for as we are. This, this is, we're stewarding this precious thing. We're given something. We're like this butler or this waitress or this steward who's going, I've been given this gift of managing this information, of managing this history, of managing this responsibility for the benefit, like for the glory of the Lord, not for my sake. The gospel is not making me look any better. If I'm sharing the gospel in such a way that makes me look like the hero, you know, I was searching and then thank goodness I'm a good reader and I found the truth, come follow me. I'm the hero of that story. I'm not sharing. That's not, that's not a faithful telling of the gospel. But if I'm sharing with people the gospel in such a way that makes me small and makes God look big, then I'm being a faithful steward. Not only that, but I can enjoy this process. I'm like a, a person in poverty house-sitting a, a billionaire's house, and they've given me the keys. You know, it's not mine, but you all can enjoy it. It's not mine, but I can enjoy it, and you can enjoy it with me. Come on over. That's... That's what Paul's saying here is I've been giving the stewardship from God to make known the riches of the treasures of the heavens that you might also partake with me in that. And this is part of what the work of doing the work of becoming a mature church is, is we realize that uh, the message we've been given both creates joy in our hearts and it creates opportunity for others to be invited into that joy. See, sometimes we think of evangelism or telling people about Jesus is like this, if I want to be a good Christian, I gotta do it. And there's like this guilt or this shame of like, well, good Christians do this, so I guess I should be a good Christian and I should do this. But I'm telling you, nobody paid me to evangelize Topo to you all, and I just did. Why? Because I find authentic, meaningful joy in it. I think it's great, and you all should go there. And I would, I'd like to go. Like, like when, when we're really going, what a treat, what a blessing, what a treasure, I'm good, it's going to spill out. And I think that rather than being committed to evangelism, we need to be committed to rejoicing in the Lord and what he's given us, and then evangelism might happen. It probably will happen. That rather than like giving yourself this courageous pep talk saying, go tell people about Jesus, we need to worship our way into being able to do what Paul is doing. It's going like, yes, it's a setback. Yes, there's social loss. Yes, there's possibly financial loss. But guess what? I enjoy this process because I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And so if you aren't rejoicing the Lord and you're going to tell people about Jesus out of some guilt or shame, I got to tell you this, just stop doing it. 
because you're probably not selling something that other people are interested in. <laughs> like, I just know that when I'm actually loving Jesus, when I'm actually rejoicing for what he's done for me and is doing in me, then it comes out. It's not a strategic effort. It's an honest sharing of what's happening in my soul. So we can enjoy the stewardship. Not for fear, not out of shame, not out of branding ourselves as something, but just going, man, Topo burritos changed my life, and you should eat there too. <laughs> the third thing is we need to embrace struggle. We're in this cultural moment where if there's difficulty, that means something's wrong. If there's uh, struggle, that means there's a systemic problem. That if there's work involved, therefore it's natural. You know, I had a couple of my friends last week been asking about me, and uh, one of them, actually two, three of them in different ways, I said, hey, you, you're pretty discerning. What do you think about me? And then says, like, Seth, do you do anything that you're bad at? So it looks like you find some stuff you're good at, and you just do that. And I'm like, of course I do that. <laughs> Who likes to waste time doing stuff they're bad at? <laughs> that sounds silly. And they challenged me, kind of not, not necessarily like as, you know, authority figures, but going, it'd be good for you to like have to like emotionally deal with stuff you're bad. Like I, I'm the type of person I try something once, if I'm not good at it, I'm like, never again, right? Like I had a bad time rock climbing in middle school. I don't do that. Like that's, <laughs> want to go rock climbing? No, hard pass. I'm not into that, right? Just, well, why? I don't like it. Why don't you like it? Because I'm bad at it. Who likes stuff they're bad at? What are you talking about here? And, and. But on a more serious note, that plays out in different ways in careers, in parenting, in marriage, in church. I tried to get connected. It was hard. I'm out. I tried to take her on dates. She wasn't grateful. I'm out. I tried to correct that behavior. They just said, no, did my best. Can't wait to send them to school where they'll actually be effective. Uh, they think about the, where, when the going gets tough. We quit. Can't stand the heat. We're just out of the kitchen. That's like our, there's a whole book by a guy named Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind. You know, he's not a Christian, but um, he's smarter than all of us. And just the way that we've, you know, like I'm, I'm a big fan of safe spaces. And what I mean by that is places where people aren't going to be judged or presumed upon, right? But safe spaces become like this, you cannot challenge me on anything, otherwise I'm triggered and you're going to get a lawsuit. You need, a safe, you need safe spaces of like people who really know you and love you, and no matter what, they're for you. You need that. You also need spaces where you're going to get pushed on and challenged, and you're going to embrace the struggle. A guy named Frederick Douglass said it like this, without struggle, there is no progress. You could apply that to every facet of your life, all the way up and down through everything. Fitness, family, parenting, marriage, finances. Yeah, 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 yeah. Paul here is getting at that mostly in reference to the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, for your sake. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he's working within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea. We think sometimes church should be easy. Why is it hard? Some of you came to church and you got connected like that. 
Some of you jump to other churches and you got connected like that. Some of you come here and it's like, I'm trying to make friends and it's difficult. I'm trying to get what they're talking about and it's difficult. I'm trying to get connected and it's hard. I'm trying to use my gifts and there's, and I want you to say, if the Apostle Paul is struggling, agonizing, toiling, that word struggle could be translated agonized, toiling, suffering for the sake of this church becoming mature, what makes us think we'll be any different? Sometimes doing church, being a part of a church, moving the church in maturity is hard. And I think sometimes we let our Christianese get in the way of this. We think that hard work means like legalism or working really hard at something means we're not like trusting in God. Uh, Dallas Willard, a great spiritual uh, formation guy, said this, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. You can't earn anything from God. You can't earn community. You can't earn acceptance. You can't earn these things. But putting in the work, doing the work, is part of what God has called us to do. Toil, struggle, agonize. We got to do it. Press in, press forward. I just want like us as a church to go. If we're going to go from just getting older to getting mature, that involves a lot of people rolling up their sleeves and doing the work of relationship. And in particular, here's what he's getting at. Here's, what it, here's the exact struggle he's calling us to embrace. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. Staying encouraged is work. You want to drift into discouragement? Do nothing. You want to drift into a place where you lack courage, where you lack uh, optimism or hope about the future? Do nothing. Or better yet, do what everybody else does, which is scroll and turn on the news. Discouragement comes naturally. Agonizing, doing the work of our hearts being encouraged actually takes meaningful, purposeful engagement. Uh, Next says, being knit together in love. This idea of being knit together. I don't know if we have any surgeons in the congregation. We might. Right, but this is not uh, just you know, needlepoint knitting, which is, takes time and work. This is the idea of a body that's been ripped. Like, like if I ripped my arm off, it would be these like shards of flesh hanging off. right? That we're the body of Christ. And we need to be repaired surgically with needles and, and woven together. That we would be knit together between one another. Needle in, needle out. That's painful in surgery. This is written before the great invention called painkillers. All they had was bite on this leather. I'm going to knit you together. Just part of the struggle that we're all called to is to maintain our encouraged hearts by any means necessary, but also to form these meaningful connections with other people. Meaningful connections are scary and difficult because if you're meaningfully connected to someone, they can meaningfully harm you. You know, you see some neighbor on the street, or some, not neighbor, some restrainer on the street, and it's like, hey, you're a loser. You're like, that guy's nuts. That's all you think. You don't, you're not tempted to like, take it personally. But you open yourself up to someone. You're, you engage in like, healthy, appropriate levels of vulnerability. You let them see you like the real you, not the projected you, not the Instagram you, like the, the you that's sinful and insecure and complicated. You're, you're handing them ammunition, saying, you can use this against me if you want. I'm trusting that you won't, but that's what you're doing. Handing them a needle, saying, let's sew, let's get busy. 
that it is work and it's scary and there's risk involved. I heard this study this past week of this, they interviewed a whole bunch of folks who are over the 90 years old, um, they're particularly men nearing their deathbeds. What would you want to tell your, yourself in your 20s and 30s? And one of the top three answers was take more risks, both financial and relational. You know, pick up the phone, drive to the meeting, show up, take more risks. I think, because by the time you're in your 90s, you understand that nothing meaningful ever happens without some degree of risk. To get connected here, to become a mature church requires us risking the vulnerability of the being knit together process. Now, we can't all be best friends with everyone, but we all have to really be known by someone and be connected to someone and that requires some level of risk. Their hearts being knit together in love so that in order to reach the riches of full assurance. This idea, like think about a trampoline that if you pulled out like those little like threads that go through it, you know, that creates the buoyancy. If you started pulling out threads of this trampoline, every thread that gets pulled out, you're less sure that that thing's going to send you back up. At some point you think, I might go through this thing. <laughs> right? That this being knit together, that's being solidly woven together, actually creates buoyancy in our faith. That if we want full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in us, then we have to be knit together. That the emotional relational work of making meaningful friendships within the body of Christ actually is part of what produces theological and spiritual security. Isn't that interesting? It's not read more books, dig deeper holes, get your roots down deeper, but it's actually get your roots tangled. It's get connected. It's support one another. It's lift each other up. That some of you are, are wandering in your faith, and part of what's holding you back is you've not done the work of being knit together in love. Because it's actually in that community experience where we get to taste and see the reality of the Spirit's presence, working in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control that as we, we walk and see each other building each other up, that we actually get connected to the fruit of the work of the Spirit in the life of the body of Christ. Here's the last thing I want us to notice here is in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. All his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the engine situation. My brother bought my son one of those little like, uh, uh, like, motorized electronic things, you sit on it and you press the paddle and it goes like, you know, 2.2 miles an hour. You know, it's got the, the thing turns like this much, bought it for him. And uh, because I'm a bad dad, I lost the charger to the battery, right? So my, my son's out there stomping on the gas pedal. Dad! Needs new batteries! I'm like, no, it doesn't need any batteries. It needs a charger. And dad threw it away. So sorry. So he's out there, like at least once a week. He goes out there, sits on it. And I'm like, sorry, dude. <laughs> There's no power in that thing. And, you know, not all the dots are connected there. He's two and a half, you know. But like, I, dad, where's the charger? Like, I think that's a lot of what Paul's getting at in this, is apart from the spirit moving us and leading us and empowering us, we're like silly two-year-olds sitting on this thing with a dead battery, stomping on the gas pedal saying, go. And we just look silly. That we need to be dependent and receptive to the way the Spirit is actually propelling us 
and moving us. That this doing the work is not disconnected from the power that enables us to do the work in the first place. I bought these uh, yard work tools off uh, Facebook Marketplace used. I was pretty excited about it. Uh, and it came with the battery, you know, you know, the 40 volt battery thing. And I was happy about that because batteries are the most expensive part. That's actually how they get you. It's like the Keurig thing. They don't make money off the deal. They make money off every little cup you buy. Like these battery powered tools, what they're doing is they're signing up for, you have to, in every 10, every year for the next 10 years, you give them 300 bucks for this expensive battery. So it comes with the battery, sweet. And so I do the battery thing and I hit the trigger on the string trimmer and nothing happens. And I'm like, that's great. That's really annoying. Maybe it's just a dead battery. So I took the battery off, I put it on the charger, and it says defective. And I think, I thought I saved money. Actually, I'm just a sucker. You know, it's that way playing off. And no amount of putting that battery on the charger is going to save that battery. The battery's defective. It's broken. See, a lot of us think that if we just take a weekend off, if we just, if we just spend more time on the charger, another hour of sleep, we're going to be better. But the reality is that we are born sinful and depraved to the core that we are born with bad, defective batteries, and we need new batteries, that God gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new soul, and you're not going to be able to drink enough caffeine to manifest the energy of the Spirit moving in you into relationships. You're not going to be able to take enough uh, you know, uppers and downers that enable you to just be the just right amount of you that you're going to actually be interesting and connect with people. That's not how this works, that we need the Spirit to come in and take out our defective battery, give us a new battery, and then not lose the charger and empower us to work and do the work of building up the church into maturity. And I hope you all realize this, that unless you've actually trusted God to give you a new heart, change my heart, give me new affections, reorient me. I don't want you to just tweak my worldview. I want you to rebuild me from the inside out. I, I'm defective. I need a new. I don't need this fixed. I need different. I need better. I need brand new. I need fixed. That is the work of the Spirit. That he comes in and says, your heart's broken, not here's some blood pressure pills, but he goes, new heart, boom. And then we connect with the Spirit of God, and he fills us, and he empowers us, and he moves us so that we can actually do the work, that we enjoy the stewardship, that the secret is revealed, and that we're able to walk meaningfully into people, embracing the struggle of the work of connecting, of building, of studying, and of loving. And so I hope that we as a church recognize that without struggle, there's no progress. And if we don't embrace that struggle, we're going to get old. We're not going to get mature. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your kindness and your patience. Thank you for giving us new hearts and keeping those hearts pumping by your Spirit. Father, I pray for people who have been trying and trying to do this work, that you would give them a fresh wave of energy. And I pray that we would all be healthily afraid of just getting old and not of growing into maturity. Let us not take maturity for granted. Help us be, help us be grateful for the maturity that we have. And take us into a deeper picture of that. Amen.